few lessons, we were looking at the church of Jerusalem and we're working our way through the churches of the New Testament. Uh, It's a very interesting study to look at how churches were started, the culture of the society where churches were started and and so forth. And then uh, the deeper we'll get in, we'll uh, even get into looking at doctrinal issues that began to pop up and how they resolved those. But today we're looking at the church of Antioch. Uh, Really, the church of Jerusalem was a missionary church in a way that Upon the persecution, if you remember, upon the persecution of the saints, it says especially the persecution of Stephen, they went everywhere preaching the word. But in Antioch, we begin to see how um, they sent out missionaries and and how that was done. And so let's begin reading, though, in Acts chapter 11. We'll read uh, part of this chapter, and then we'll look at four verses in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 11, and we'll begin reading in verse 19. Now, here's one thing I just want you to notice in verse 19. Um, the time frame of this is taking us right back a few chapters earlier to when the church in Jerusalem began to be missionary, as I just mentioned, upon the persecution of Stephen. Well, notice here in verse 19, there's been a lot happen as you read through the book of Acts until you come to verse 19, and it takes us back. It says, Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenix and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch who when he came and had seen the grace of God was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And in those days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And now let's just skip over to uh, chapter 13. And we'll look at the first four verses of that chapter. It says, Now there, was, there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them away. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. And we'll stop reading there. As we begin to look at the church of Antioch, I think it's important to understand the location and the culture and so forth of of Antioch. Uh, Antioch is located in southern Turkey, the corner of southern Turkey, and it's north of Damascus, Syria, about 320 miles north of Jerusalem. 
In fact, if you've been watching the news lately and you've heard of the earthquake that just happened in Turkey and Syria, it is right smack. The epicenter is basically where Antioch was. Um, in fact, um, as I was doing a little bit of this research earlier this week in light of that earthquake, I was reading back about the history of Antioch and the city itself, Damascus is still around today, and there's a lot of ancient cities that are still functional, but Antioch isn't really one of those. And um, Antioch, um, during the early church, it was, I think it was around um, 90 AD, there was a horrific earthquake that killed a lot of people and destroyed a lot of the structure. And then again, in the early 100s, there was another earthquake. And by the time... Uh, the mid-100s rolled around, there was an earthquake that destroyed about half the city, and it just wasn't rebuilt. It was becoming so difficult. And so Antioch, that region of the world, has a, a real history of violent earthquakes, and um, Antioch ended up not being able to survive some of that. Um, Edward Gibbon, famed historian, said of Antioch, fashion, this is important to note, I believe, fashion was the only law, pleasure the only pursuit, and the splendor of dress and furniture was the, mo was the only distinction of the citizens of Antioch. The arts of luxury were honored and serious and manly virtues were subject of ridicule. And the contempt of female modesty and reverent age announced the universal corruption of the capital of the East. Now this is secular history saying that this is how Antioch was. It would be about like starting a church in Hollywood, California. That's basically uh, where it was, uh, how the city of Antioch was. And so when you consider, isn't it interesting that it's in that kind of society that they were called Christians first in Antioch? The people who were born again in that kind of corrupt society were such a stark contrast to the people that were around them. And it became notable that they're different. And they became called Christians first in Antioch. Um, I've touched on it in recent lessons. There are different terminologies for the church today in which there's a lot of compromise made. There's the ecumenical movement, which, which has been around for a while. But there's a new term that's out, the emergent church. The emergent church of today is a, is a movement and a belief that we need to adapt the church to the culture and the society of our age so we can reach that society. Well, I can guarantee you that the early church that was established in Antioch, where they were first called Christians, was not an emergent church. Right, yes. They did not conform to, and the same was in Corinth and Rome, the early church did not conform to the wicked, corrupt society that they were in and follow their dress code. We just saw about their dress, about their, um, their uh, being effeminate. Uh, manliness was mocked at. Women's modesty was ridiculed. Um, in the emergent church, those things are embraced so that the preachers want to be relevant. There, there's no place for trying to be relatable and relevant. The, I can be relatable to the lost world and the fact that Listen, I know what it's like to be a corrupt, lost sinner. I know what it's like to be a slave to my sin. I know what it's like to have, be, you know, sin have such a weight on me that I cannot break it. 
I get that. I understand. I've been where you've been. But I don't need to still be like you and let you know that Jesus loves me as I am, even though I'm corrupt. And so um, the early church in Antioch, they were called Christians first in Antioch. Churches are to be and have been planted in even the most wicked of places. It's an interesting thing to me. You know, in our society, um, it's, a, it's a difficult thing. There's a lot of conversation that comes up. And I know there's no way I'm going to get through my notes today because I'm going down rabbit holes already. But the thing is, is I've had a lot of conversations with people about how do you know when it's time to pack up and move your family out of a wicked society? You know, these are, you don't want to be like Lot and be stuck in a society raising your children in this corruption. And yet, um, as Christians in the church age, we have a responsibility to preach the gospel to the lost because the only people that Jesus came to save was he came to seek and to save that which was lost. He saves wicked people. And so how do you balance remaining a light in a wicked society and moving off into uh, parts of the Yukon (laughs) and living a life where you're separate from the world completely? Is it possible to be separate from the world in our corrupt society and still be a light and raise a family and so forth. Well, an interesting thing is when you study the cities in the Roman Empire, these were absolutely horrible cities. The things that happened in Rome and Corinth would shock even us today. It really would. The, just the open immorality and the way that they were was shocking And we see that churches, the people of God actually went to those places proactively to see that people would be saved. Now here's the amazing thing. When the people went in and they went to some of these cities, they actually had such an impact on those cities that they changed some of the culture of those cities. Uh, We'll look at it later, but in Ephesus... In some of those regions, one of the reasons that Paul and the men that he would be with, whether it was Barnabas or Silas, the reason that they were constantly being persecuted is because in one passage they're referred to as having turned this city upside down, right? They, people were losing, there was such revival going on or spiritual awakening going on that people were losing their livelihood in making idols and things like that. It was affecting the income of certain industries. And so... God is powerful enough to change a wicked society. Even though our community is getting more and more corrupt and there are certain states and cities and regions in our country that are getting worse and worse, we have to still believe that God God is powerful enough to save whosoever He will, right? And God is the one that can make an impact. And so this is the background of the city of Antioch. The saints stood out. Um, How was the church in Antioch started? If you were to go back to Acts chapter 6, I don't know that this man necessarily was involved in going there. Uh, We we did read a couple names, but when they were selecting deacons in in Acts uh, chapter 6, remember they selected, uh, uh, I almost said the Ethiopian eunuch, (laughs) they selected Philip um, and Stephen and so forth that lists them off. And one of the men that was listed was Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. So that means he was, 
a man in the church in Jerusalem, but originally he was from the city of Antioch. But Acts chapter 11 actually names some of the people that were there. And I just want to point out how it was that Jerusalem had a direct um, connection with the church being started in Antioch. So if we look back again in Acts 11, 19 through 21, we see that other men from Jerusalem, Jewish, Jewish natives of Cyprus and Cyrene, go to Antioch and preach, and many believe. Verse 19 says, Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen. So see, although it's later here in Acts, um, uh, the time frame of the founding of the church in Antioch takes us back to about the time that Stephen was, uh, was killed. And uh, oh, this is back before, to, to get a grasp on how long Antioch was around before we actually come to it in the book of Acts here, um, think of all that happened between Stephen is killed, well, Paul, Saul, isn't even saved yet. And this, the people who went to Antioch to begin with went there upon the persecution of Stephen. And so, um, so Saul's not even saved yet. Well, we know that when uh, Saul ended up being saved in Damascus, and then he went into, I believe he then went into Arabia, and then he went from Arabia for three years he was there, and then he went back to Damascus for a short time, and then he went down to Jerusalem. And when they were going to, uh, they were seeking, the Jews were seeking to kill Saul, it says that the church of Jerusalem sent Saul to go to Tarsus. So there's four years at least right there. And then Saul, um, we read in our passage how Barnabas goes up and gets Saul from Tarsus and then comes back down. And so there's a, pretty good uh, period of time that has gone by from the time that Antioch was started until most of what we read about the church of Antioch. But in verse 20, it says some of them, which would have been those that were scattered from Jerusalem, it says were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians preaching the Lord Jesus. And so when it says the Grecians, can one of you tell me who the Grecians were? What does that mean? Greek Jews? No. Yeah, yeah they were Jews. Um, but they were Hellenized Jews. They were, um, they were Jews that had um, the, they had kind of bought into, my understanding is they had kind of adopted the Greek culture and so forth. It'd be like uh, Jews living in America today who... Um, they might practice Judaism on a, on a slight level, but for the most part, you wouldn't know that they were Jews. Um, but these, uh, they, when they went there, they began preaching initially. It says they spake unto the Grecians preaching the Lord Jesus. And so, um, as I've already mentioned, I won't get into it too much uh, for the sake of time, but there's evidence here that even the first preachers in Antioch would have come initially from the church in Jerusalem. And so um, we see that Barnabas, in the passage that we read, Barnabas eventually is sent to confirm the saints in the church in Antioch and encourage them. And so um, Barnabas stays a year in Antioch with Paul and goes to get Paul, goes to Tarsus to get him, teaching much people and grounding them in doctrine. And this church was to become a very missionary church and needed to be grounded and trained men for the work of the ministry. Um, 
I want to notice that the church cared about the needs of other churches. If you look in Acts chapter 11, in verse, uh, um, well, let's just read again, 27 through uh, 29. It says, In those days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And what we see here is a kind of giving that is different than what we think of usually as missionary uh, giving. Sometimes churches um, believe that the only kind of giving they should do outside of their church is missionary giving, you know, for the purpose of starting churches and so forth. Um, But there is definitely a place for um, giving to, well, I'll touch on a couple different things. Um, Giving for the needs of other churches if they're going through a difficult time. Uh, What if if you hear of a church that used to be 50 in number and they were self-sufficient and everything, and in past years they're going through a difficult time, Maybe through various reasons, people in the church have either died or moved away. The church can't fully support its pastor anymore. The church is going through a difficult time. Is it scriptural or okay for our church to send money to that church to help that church out? After all, it's not a mission anymore. It's not a mission work. Of course, it's, it's completely uh, reasonable to send money to support churches. Um, I have been, I was in a, in a business, well, it was a, it was a men's meeting in a church, and, and there was a, we had been supporting for years, we have been supporting a missionary, and um, they were going ahead and organizing the church, and it was going to be, um, you know, completely uh, independent, and um, one of the, our pastor recommended, he said, now, you need to understand that their financial situation hasn't changed. They just need to go ahead and, and organize and be a church. And that's what the pastor believes that they need to do. But their financial situation hasn't changed. And so I would recommend that we go ahead and just continue to support them just like we've always supported them because they need help. And, uh, um, and we were all in favor of that. But one of the guys who'd been in the church quite a while, he said, well, so if we do that, um, are we supposed to take money out of the mission fund to give it to him because technically it's not a mission anymore? Or are we going to take that out of our general fund? And you see how churches could get so ticky-tack, right? It's just, listen, we want to still support the guy. It is totally scripture for a church to support another church. In this case, what we see is this church was actually collecting up money to help. Um, it wasn't just that the church... Um, wasn't going to be able to pay its rent, so to speak. They were going to lose their building if they didn't receive money. But there was literally going to be a famine. The, the individual people, families, husbands, wives, children, were going to need support, financial support. And so they gathered up money and, um, and sent it. Now, they didn't do it through some parachurch organization. I want to be clear about that. They did it by collecting the money as a church, and then they sent it down by the hands of the elders of their church and gave it to the elders of other churches. And so then the churches distributed the money, right? 
So they weren't giving to pick whatever charitable organization you know about there that's done in the name of Christianity, and that's how we're going to help Christians. But it was churches helping churches. And it kind of goes back to, remember, as far as the process, remember um, in the early days of the church in Jerusalem, how it said that, like Barnabas, they sold their homes and their lands and their possessions. And it says, and they took the money from those from those things, and they came and they laid them at the apostles' feet. And then the church gave, distributed it to every man as he had need. It was still being done through the church, right? And so, but that's what we see here. Now here we are years later, and the charitable giving was still being done, even though it was to help individuals during times of difficulty, uh, either with housing and food and all these things, but it was still being done through the church. Church collecting money, send it to another church, then that local church would just distribute it as it had need. It also brings up another thing is um, in churches, is it okay to have, a lot of churches have a benevolent fund. They'll have, a, they'll have like their, gen, their general fund, which is for the needs of the church, and then they'll have a mission fund, which is for the support of men starting other churches. And then sometimes churches will have a benevolent fund, which is to, it's just there kind of as a slush fund to help people in the church when they have needs that arise and things like that, widows and people who fall on hard times. And, and uh, um, I think that that's a, that's a scriptural thing too. And so um, as we consider, let's look at um, the church in Antioch as a missionary church. If we go to, let's read again, Acts chapter 13, 1 through 4. This church ended up being Paul's home church for many years. Uh, Acts 13.1, it says, Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manan, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. The whole, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, I think it's important to note what they were doing when the Lord spoke. Right? They weren't, they weren't just all of them at home, concerned about worldly things and so forth, but it says, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them away. So they being sent forth by the Holy Ghost departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. I don't have it here in my notes, but it just comes to my memory. Remember when we were looking at the church in Jerusalem and how prayer was absolutely linked with everything that took place in the church in Jerusalem? We want to see the power of God today, but a lot of times we want to see the power of God without the prayer, right? We don't care so much about prayer. We have desires of our heart, but to take time and fasting, prayer, dedication to these things. Um, the church in Jerusalem, they were praying in that upper room before the day of Pentecost ever happened. And then they continued to pray. It was just a consistent theme. The apostles, when they selected the deacons, they said, we need to give ourselves to uh, basically the preaching of the word of God and to prayer. The prayer was right there tied to the preaching of the word. And, um, and here we are here, and we see twice in these, in these few verses how prayer was a key part 
of what it was. It was the behavior of that church. I want to notice that Paul and Barnabas were sent by the church, Acts in, in verse 3. And it says, And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them away. And so, one of the things I want to note is that God has chosen men to carry out His work, but the God has also chosen a method to carry out His work. And one of the reasons that's important is because in our day and age, it's not like what you see in the New Testament. In the New Testament, you always see in the church sent, in the church sent, in the church sent. It's constantly. The men in the New Testament didn't go anywhere without being sent right. by the church. Even if it was you know, what we just saw with charitable giving, it was still in the church sent. But what we have in our age of Christianity, and I mentioned in past lessons, there's 40,000 denominations on the, in the world today. Christian denominations in the world. It, it, I actually can't wrap my mind around that number. Like, how can you have that many splinters? But there's been that many people that had an aha moment in the name of the Holy Ghost, and we're like, I think this is how you're supposed to do it. And uh, thanks to Facebook and Twitter and all, Rachel was showing me some things on the way into church this morning, and now people are, they've got their ministry is, is social media. You know, their Christian ministry, and it just makes me want to gag. Oh, and so, uh, but the thing is, is, in the church, the way God intended it is God does call individual men. And He has chosen men to carry out His work in fulfilling the Great Commission. But God has also chosen a method to carry out that work. And it's to be done through the church. And what we see here is the sending was twofold. It was the church that sent them, but then it was also the Holy Ghost that sent them. And uh, it says in verse 4, so they, so it says in, in verse 3, let's just read that again and we'll read 4 with it. And they, when they had fasted and prayed, laid their hands on them and sent them away. So the church sent them away. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. It's always supposed to be a two-part ministry. The Holy Ghost sins and the church sins. The Holy Ghost leads men to do certain work. The Holy Ghost does not lead men to work contrary to the way in which He has intended. When you consider the how it works in the in the sending, the church even though the church sent Paul and Barnabas, the Holy Spirit said, separate unto, me Paul, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work whereunto I have called them. If you go back to when um, Paul was initially, Saul was called, even Ananias was told by God, this is why I have chosen Saul. He's going to be a mission. He's going to, it wasn't the term missionary, but I will send him unto the Gentiles. He's going to suffer many things for my namesake. God had a purpose for calling and saving Saul. And, And he laid his hand on him in a special way earlier. He was called to be an apostle and all these things. God is the one that called him. But God led the church, if you would, could use that term, 
He said, he told the church, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work whereunto I have called them. And the church did that and sent them away. But there is a sense in which a lot of churches have missed out on how there's to be a certain amount of disconnect or there's not to be too much control by the church over the missionary. Right? The church sends them, but God is the one leading. God is the one who called. God is the one who's laid a burden on that man's heart. The church recognizes the gift. Nowadays, we would say, because the Holy Ghost isn't going to come in here with an audible voice and say, separate unto me so-and-so for the work whereunto I've called him. But what happens is the church does recognize a gift. The church does recognize um, that the Lord has his hand on this person. And, um, and so forth. And when that man says, I believe that the Lord has called me, really laid a burden on my heart to go start a church in this particular area. And uh, the church endorses him, signs off on it, gives him everything that he could possibly need, and sends him on his way to assist him in that. That's about as far as it goes. Should go, I should say. It's not as far as it goes, but that's about as far as it should go. Um, If you consider, as we look at these churches, you will notice that Paul didn't always know exactly where it was he was supposed to go next, did he? (laughs) Paul had to be led of the Lord through his missionary journey to go to this city. And you'll see, even when they went from Philippi, they didn't always go. Sometimes they went city to city. They literally just went city to city. But sometimes, when they went from Philippi to Thessalonica, it says, and we went from Philippi, and passing through, and I can't remember the name of the city, but passing through this city, we came to Thessalonica. And I, I wonder what, it was, it was actually a big city that they passed through, and there was probably a church there later. I'm pretty confident that that would have been the case. But, see, the Lord, well then what about uh, what we call the Macedonian call? Paul desired to go off into this part of Asia, but the Holy Spirit had other plans, and Paul had to obey that, right? And he ended up going into Macedonia and wound up in Philippi. Well, Paul wasn't sending emails or sending an errand boy back to Antioch every time and saying, hey, uh, church, um, I really feel that the Lord would have me go into Asia, um, and I just wanted to make sure that you're okay with that. It's actually pretty ludicrous to think of Paul doing something like that, right? But I can give you examples of not only denominations, and I won't take the time to do it, but Protestant denominations and so forth, that the preachers are sent by the denomination to go wherever they go. And um, the men don't have a say in it. In fact, um, uh, a lady was relating to me. She grew up in a Lutheran uh, home before she was saved, and her dad was a preacher. And he would get, just get sent. He would go into a church, and it's like they figured out that he could fix problem churches. And so his ministry, pretty much the whole time she was growing up, and she's like, we would be sent to some church that was failing and having a hard time. And after we would be there and the church would get better and once we got established and we made friends and all this stuff, then he would just get sent down to another church. And it was just, his dad didn't have a say in the matter and it was just moving on. And so many of these denominations have, I mentioned how before how the Methodists have their hierarchy and the bad preachers end up in small markets. It's like the news media. 
And the better the preacher are and the more potential you have, you'll end up like, instead of a, a small potatoes town like Spokane, you'll end up in Seattle at some big church because you can handle things. And you, That's how a lot of churches do, and that's how a lot of missions are done. Um, but even in Baptist circles, there have been things that churches, even though they're independent churches, sometimes Baptists have an unscriptural mentality about how things should be. Um, I've got a friend in Colorado who started a church in one small town, and it was struggling for a few years. They grew, and then it went back down a number, and he believed that the Lord would, he was just impressing on his heart that he should try to start a church with the remaining people that were there, but try to start a church 35 miles away. That's it, just 35 miles. And so he did. And when he led of the Lord, and it's evident that it's led of the Lord because the Lord has blessed and that church is doing well. And uh, um, it's very clear that it was the Lord's intention. But because he, after he was there for three years, felt led of the Lord to go 35 miles away, when he let his sending churches know what he had done, he lost about half his support. Because he followed the leading of the Lord, and they wrote back and said, well, it was our understanding that you were going to start a church and birth it, and, um, you know, basically, and you seem, because now, because if you, if you follow the leading of the Lord, this is how sad it is, if you follow the leading of the Lord to some churches, it will seem that you're wishy-washy, that you're unstable in all your ways, and so forth, and you can't make up your mind in the ministry. Isn't that sad? Whatever happened to being led of the Holy Ghost? Right. Whatever happened to the man on the ground who's actually called of God doing the work, doing what it is that he, God would have him do? And churches support the ministry of the Word and evangelism without what they want to see happen. So you see, in Christianity as a whole, and some Baptists are even guilty of doing things in just unscriptural ways. And so... Um, I have a question here concerning, this has to do a little bit with church authority. We'll pick up with um, uh, Antioch next week because there's still some more things that um, I really want to touch on and not skip. But um, in Acts 15.40, we, um, we see that not only, I want us to notice some terminology. Um, actually, turn to, let's go to... Uh, I think it's 1426. In 13, we see that the church sent them and the Holy Spirit sent them. But as they're returning to the church at the end of chapter 14, the end of their first missionary journey, it says in verse 26, uh, let's, go to, let's go to 23. And when they had ordained, so they're coming back through the churches that they had started. And when they had ordained them elders in every church, and they prayed with fasting and commended them. They commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia, or Atalia. And thence they sailed to Antioch, from whence, notice this, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them. And how he had opened the doors of faith uh, to the Gentiles. And there they abode long time with the disciples. And so we see that they went out on their missionary journey. As they're coming back, 
um, they end up spending a fair amount of time in the church in Antioch and, um, and so forth. But I want us to notice that, that phrase there. Um, they went to Antioch from whence they had been recommended, notice this, to the grace of God for the work which they had fulfilled. They were turned over. It's almost as though they endorsed them, they embraced them, they supported them, they sent them out with the blessing of the church, but they were almost as though they were turned over to the grace of God to follow the leading of God, to follow the providence of God, the supply of God, whatever, um, the leadership of God. They were recommended, but it wasn't this strong controlling um, aspect of, of missions. And so um, they returned there. And I think I want to go ahead and stop with that, with that thought. Um, I have a question here um, concerning... There are so many missionaries and so many men who start churches today and they don't want to be recommended by the grace of God by a church. They want to just go out and do their own thing. My question is, why would any missionary, and not even a missionary, why would anybody want to start his own church in his own community without being recommended to the grace of God by a church? Why would you insist people insist on doing their own thing their own way oh i have the holy the holy spirit's leading me you know oh christ is the head of the church and that's all i need but you, what you find in the word of god is that the church is sent the church is recommended right. it was a partnership and the holy spirit indwelt church right who prayed and fasted sent them out with blessing so why would people not want to do that today? Mm. Let's get some feedback, just a little bit of feedback. Different spirit. It's a different spirit than what they had, Pride. possibly. Pride? Pride, yeah. A couple other thoughts. I got a couple other thoughts. Well, they don't want any authority over them. They want to do what they want to do. And the question is, why would you not want authority? Why do kids not want to have authority over them? So they can do what they want to do, how they want to do it. The reason we have 40,000, the, the early church started off with the Church of Jerusalem. And I've said before, it was the purest church. There wasn't any false doctrine. There was one faith, one baptism, as it speaks of in Ephesians 4. False teachings began to creep in, but it took time. But one of the things is that People, too many times, people who go out and start a church, they can't actually find a church because the reason that they want to do their own thing is because they have this little pet doctrine. Yeah. Or they have they found this one little thing that they figured it out. And they want to go out and they want to start a church where we, we do it this way. So I could use this as an example. Like, it's not necessary but I could so easily make it a pet doctrine of mine that I just insist, and I don't know of any churches that do it, so I'm going to go start churches that we start doing it. And that would be that in the New Testament, they baptized people the same day that they were saved, every time. You can't find an example except for Paul of anybody who wasn't baptized the same day they were, they were saved. And uh, um, I've never been in a church or known of churches. I think historically there have been churches that tried to do that. But if I just was like, 
there isn't one church that's doing it according to the Word of God, and I'm going to go out and we're going to start doing it how the Bible does it, and I might be off in a couple other doctrines. I'm using, you know. And, uh, but that's my pet. That is what I'm going to do, and nobody else does it right. And you know what? If we were to do it the way they did it in the Bible and baptize people the same day they were saved, we could have a movement like, because, I mean, that's easy to see, right? And you just start your own denomination. Next thing you know, your intention is to start a church where you just do things right. And that's what I live and die by is that one little thing, that little sliver of doctrine. And that's how you have all these denominations. Your Calvary chapels and all the, every little flavor, like your cowboy church. You're, we're driving by a church out here the other day. I know you're not supposed to name names, but I mean, we're driving by this one out by where the Kilgards live and um, on the highway. And it used to be a cowboy church, and now it's a, a first international missionary church of something. Church of the Mom. Yeah. And we're like, what is, what? I've never heard of like that. And so, you know, nowadays you drive by a church, you just Google it, and boom, statement of faith pops up, and it just took us to a link of a Ukrainian, a church in Spokane that's a Ukrainian assembly of God something. And then we got in there and we're looking at the mission statement, trying to figure out what it was. It was so confusing that I don't even know what they're trying to accomplish, what they're trying to do, but you see how many factions and splits and this and that, and, and that church is called something different than... Um, it's all these, it's just this one little slice and this one little flavor. And when you get away from church authority and you have men just going out there and doing whatever they want, whenever they want, and they don't have the blessing of a church, you end up with 40,000 different denominations. We're in a mess today. We need to just get back to the basics of how they did it in the Bible. Yes. We don't.